0: Welcome and welcome to Views from the Crow's Nest by Fisher Jordan, a strategic management consultancy based in New York, helping top business leaders solve complex problems through strategic insights, novel data analytics techniques, and a strong technology background. This podcast is called Views from the Crow's Nest, where we explore topics we see at the horizon line of the marketplace, sharing insights we've gained through our work in a variety of sectors, covering emerging trends and topics of interest to business leaders and consumers alike. At least once a month, we're going to host a discussion on a particular emerging topic within the business world on categories that could include finance, technology, marketing, healthcare, and beyond. Today, we'd like to welcome you to our first full-length episode, Lending in the Post-COVID World. When, where, and how much? My name is Nathan Johnson. Welcome to The Crow's Nest. There's certainly no shortage of discussion around the economic consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic, especially on how it will affect small to medium enterprises or SMEs. You might sometimes see that abbreviated that way. Unfortunately, it seems almost inevitable that there will be some small businesses and perhaps larger ones who will not make it through the pandemic uh, one way or another. And a specific facet of that discussion that we're not hearing much about yet is defaulted loans, specifically the long-term challenges to small businesses who will soon be defaulting on those loans. Our view from the crow's nest today is how this will impact lenders in the next six months to a year or more. Providing that view today is the co-host of this podcast, none other than Fisher Jordan's very own founder and CEO, Dr. Boaz Salik, who joins me now on the phone. Dr. Salik, welcome.
1: Hi, Nathan.
0: Thank you. You bet. Um, So to kick off the discussion today, I just wanted to open up and ask you, how has the COVID crisis impacted lenders and borrowers thus far? If you had to summarize. Absolutely. And yeah, as as we've seen,
2: Nathan, there have really been very few areas of both the economy as well as day-to-day life that haven't been impacted by the crisis. And we've seen actually pretty interesting and unique responses at at um, different levels um, operating. So from the point of view of, of the government, we've seen a lot of intervention, uh, both for individuals, whether it's um, delayed tax deadlines, tax incentives, uh, extended unemployment, stimulus checks, et cetera. From the point of view of big financial institutions like banks and credit unions, uh, we've seen unprecedented flexibility in working with borrowers to help extend the terms of their loans, avoid foreclosures and repossessions, um, and generally a very constructive approach. Um, and then from the point of view of borrowers, whether it be individuals or companies, we've seen a willingness to, to actually take on additional debt through the crisis, which is pretty unusual. Usually in economic downturns, you see a kind of an unwinding of leverage. and In this case, largely because people are expecting an eventual recovery they're willing to take on additional debt additional leverage in order to make it through and then hopefully rebound and, and become successful um both individually as well as as organizationally from the point of view of of borrowers we're seeing a lot of government programs that are addressed uh, both, both to small and medium sized enterprises uh, one of the challenges that we're seeing is actually being able to navigate that and have a consistent strategy. Um, and so, you know, kind of one of the themes that we're seeing for for these small to mid-sized businesses is they've they've had to, in addition to figuring out how to uh, how to weather the storm, is they've had to figure out how to navigate different different kinds of lending programs and actually have a strategy when it comes to financing, which a lot of them haven't had in the past. From the point of view of lenders, we're seeing um, a number of things happening. One is obviously that their existing loan books um, have had to to be significantly restructured. So we're seeing a large number of of deferments or renegotiation of loan terms that lenders are offering to their borrowers. Um, secondly, as we're seeing a, a large operational pressures, both in terms of um, you know the, the lockdowns and social distancing, making making it necessary to shift to a Uh, a largely work-from-home environment, which which the lenders generally have not had in in the past, uh, as well as the the large number of government loan programs, which a lot of which do flow through financial institutions, and so they've had to reorient themselves towards being able to handle those large volumes of loan applications, both for the Paycheck Protection Program as well as, um, more recently, for the Main Street uh, lending facility by the Federal Reserve.
0: Sure. And uh, could you expound a little bit more on some important dynamics at play right now in the credit risk environment?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in a typical lending operation, there are usually at least a couple of levels of, of decisioning and sometimes more that take place. One level is the uh, what's called credit modeling, which is the FICO and other equivalent scores on the commercial lending side, real estate mm-hmm. side, that Incorporate a variety of factors and come up with generally a score that tells the lender how, how creditworthy is this this particular borrower for this particular loan. And then the the second phase is the manual underwriting phase, where many lenders do a manual review, which includes more qualitative factors. Um, you know, looking at bank statements, possibly looking at tax returns, possibly looking at detailed information about collateral. And what we're seeing is that. From the modeling side, uh, a lot of the models that have been in use, such as FICO, are still useful, but maybe not to the extent that they used to be because of the unique dynamics of of which businesses are uh, experiencing extended shutdowns and which ones are, are kind of getting back into business more quickly that may have not been originally incorporated into the models when the models were built. Um, a second factor is when to, when to grant or extend loan modifications, um, which, again, uh, used to be done on, on, on the basis of a combination of models and, and um, uh, just a detailed knowledge of the borrower, but now has additional factors coming into play, such as uh, what's the business's um, long-term prospect for, for reopening and, and getting back sure. into a run rate mode. Then you have the additional complicating factor of of government loans coming into play. A lot of these government loans, uh, such as PPP won't necessarily show up on the Credit Bureau report or, uh, on, on, you know, other public data sources that are available to, to lenders. So it's, uh, incumbent on the lenders to kind of keep track of which of their borrower base are, are getting these loans, how large are the loans and, um, how does that impact the the seniority and and viability of their existing debt as well as any future debt that that may originate?
0: So uh, almost all lenders, be they consumer or commercial, currently have a significant portion of their loan book that is in modification or forbearance. How is this likely to play out over the next few months and quarters? So
1: yeah, most forbearance requests that happened in the initial part of the crisis were granted by lenders, partly. Due to to their own policy and and brand considerations and wanting to serve their customers in the best possible way, as well as uncertainty on how the crisis is likely to play out, uh, as well as some government regulations in some cases requiring those forbearances, so now we're we're getting into like the second or possibly even the third wave of forbearances, and so lenders are being more selective and essentially trying to guess or or make an educated guess as to which borrowers are likely to survive over the longer term and should get extended terms. In general, the the best practice, you know, in terms of a a lender practice for figuring out how to grant forbearance and for how long is trying to work closely with the borrower in a way that leaves the borrower invested in the decision. So either negotiating a reduced Reduce payments amount and some kind of regular cycle for contact and information sharing, but gives them the runway that they require in order to eventually bounce back. Um, which, which, as, as I mentioned earlier, that the, the general perception is that most of these businesses will eventually come back and, and be thriving businesses once again. One example that we've seen is Western Alliance, um, which has a $2 billion hotel portfolio. Uh, so loans to mm. hotels, which are obviously severely impacted. And what we're seeing is is they've been granting extension requests anywhere from six to 12 months. But at the same time, they're highly customized to the specific business that they're working with, you know, in a way that allows the business to, to stick around, but also keeps them invested and uh, make sure they have continued skin in the game, as well as allows the the lender to kind of react as additional changes happen. So, on the one hand, you wanna you wanna keep in touch with borrowers, make sure they stay invested in the process. But on the other hand, you don't want to be so aggressive where uh, you're the one driving them into bankruptcy or dr- you know driving them to uh, making the business fail as, as lender. You wanna be you wanna be viewed as the partner that helps them through the crisis and not vice versa. Of course.
0: So most lenders have substantially increased their loan loss reserves in the first and second quarters. Um, what, do you, what do you think? Could there be additional risk beyond what's currently reflected in their reserves?
1: Yeah. Um, look at FDIC data. What you see is total loan loss reserves going from fourth quarter of 2019 to first quarter of 2020 went up by about $73 billion from $124 billion to $197 billion. Um, and that's on a loan basis of a uh, total loan volume of about $15 trillion. So that represents about an 80 basis point um, lo- loan loss reserve across the board. And this includes a lot of different types of loans. Now, uh, in the second quarter, which we don't have aggregate data yet from the FDIC, but we have seen uh, some of the larger banks come back with further increase in their loss reserves, which was even bigger than what we saw for the first quarter so. What we're projecting, based on on those initial data points, is uh, loss reserves could go from 197 to as high as 300 billion um, by the time all is done and, and all the beans are accounted for the second quarter. So the 300 billion of loss reserve, uh, let's say at the end of second quarter, represents about a two percent uh, loss reserve. when looked at as a percentage of the total loans outstanding, which is about a 150% increase compared to the baseline of about 80 80 basis points. Um, What we've seen in past recessions is that um, at the trough, the loss reserve could could get up to three to five times as high depending on the severity of recession. Um, It's not always apples to apples, and we know that in this case there's been a, a massive amount of positive intervention from the government. So that could impact the loss reserves, but generally speaking, if you even take the low end, so three times the 80 basis points would get you to about 2.4%, which could translate to an additional, you know, up to 70 to 80 billion of additional reserves that we see beyond that. So we do think that there is probably a little bit of downside, and then if it's higher than the 3x, then it could get worse than that so we are expecting some additional downside in terms of the loss reserves compared to what's already been communicated by the banks
0: so if i remember correctly you'd refer to risk environments like the one we're in right now as an outlier environment as opposed to a normal risk environment earlier you were you were mentioning a little bit about this but do models like fico still work in an outlier environment or no
2: yeah this is actually a pretty significant factor in how lending is changing through this Uh, COVID environment and uh, in ways that that actually may continue after the crisis itself is over. So I think there's there's generally pretty broad awareness of the increasing use of credit models in both consumer as well as business loan originations. Um, So in addition to the three uh, consumer credit bureaus, there are now a number of business credit bureaus as well as a number of alternative data sources that lenders use FICO is one of the models that is the most familiar out there, and there are probably um, dozens, if not hundreds, of different variations depending on the lender, the customer segment, the type of loan being offered, um, and a variety of other factors. We have seen a deterioration in the performance of these credit credit models as the crisis has unfolded uh, for the simple reason that the, the models weren't built with an environment like like this one in mind. So... Uh, both the magnitude of the crisis, uh, as well as structurally, which industries are being impacted the most, which ones are kind of barely surviving, and which industries are are frankly doing better than they were before. Uh, So we are seeing at all different levels, whether it's the credit bureaus themselves, whether it's organizations like Fair Isaac who build these models, um, or even the lenders who have proprietary models, we're seeing a, a large effort to either modify or completely revamp the models in order to factor uh factor in the current environment. Um a couple of the themes that we're seeing is um firstly uh I think everyone is trying to um shift right now more from a strictly debt holder mentality to a little bit more of an equity holder mentality and try to anticipate which industries are likely to to survive um in some cases, you know, some industries like e-commerce Um, And some trucking companies and, you know, things like biotech and pharma, which are doing very well. You have on the other side of things, you have the hotel sector, the restaurant sector, the travel sector that uh, are severely impacted and and may be impacted for for the longer term as well. Um, And then you have some industries in the middle, like manufacturing, farming and construction that are probably somewhere in between. They they have suffered an impact, um, but many of these businesses are likely to recover in the medium term. So kind of one effort is trying to, un- to understand what's the, what are the recovery prospects for a given industry or a given business and factor that into the model. The second important factor that uh, we see lenders trying to factor in is the geographical factors. So depending on whether you're in New York City or San Diego or the Northwest, the the epidemic wave, so to speak, is kind of hitting you differently. And, and we think a wave is actually a great analogy for this, because, you know, if you're in the middle of the ocean and you see a wave coming, it's kind of important to position yourself accurately with respect to the wave um, so it, it doesn't broadside you or catch you off guard. So, um, you know, a good example is New York City, where um, the reaction may have been slightly late to, to the to the wave of the epidemic. And we saw the case number rise very quickly. But once the city re- reacted decisively, the number of new cases were able to plateau. Uh, and now it seems to be under control versus, you know almost the the opposite example is a California, which, may have shut things down a little bit too early before the wave arrived and then reopened before the wave actually hit, and then that got hit and had to have reclosures. So depending on what geography you're in, the the dynamics of which businesses are likely to uh, recover and over what timeframes are likely to be very different. So what we're seeing across the board is kind of a consistent effort to try to factor these dynamics into the existing models.
0: So given all that... um... How aggressive or deliberate should lenders be in originating new loans in this environment?
2: Yeah, this is definitely one of the critical questions that every single lender is going to have to face and navigating through the downturn, together with um, obviously how do they manage their existing loan book that they probably had going into the crisis. Firstly, it's worth mentioning that when we talk about lenders, there's a very broad range of different types of loans out there. So, whether it's consumer loans versus commercial loans, Um, whether they're secured or unsecured loans, um, and then if they are secured, uh, what type of security is it? Is it a real estate loan, a lease, a motor vehicle loan, and similarly on the unsecured side, there are uh, several different types of unsecured loans. So it's a pretty broad range of instruments um, that we're looking at. Broadly speaking, when we look at at these lenders, we're generally seeing them fall into three different groups or buckets of lenders. So On the one side of the spectrum, you have lenders that probably took on more risk than they should have before the crisis. Usually they do that in an effort to grow more quickly. Um, But in a lot of cases, that risk um, ended up being too much to handle, and they're now in a position where they have to either sell parts of their portfolio or, or sell the entire company in some cases um so a couple of examples there is you see cabbage which was one of the big um alternative lenders uh, b2b alternative lenders being sold uh, being bought by american express uh you have innova acquiring Ondic, another big alternative lender and there are a few other examples out there um in the middle segment or middle bucket you see kind of the traditional banks traditional credit unions um who did have a sizable loan portfolio, but also generally have strong balance sheets, and they're going to be able to, for the most part, they're going to be able to withstand the the credit losses and make it through the crisis. Um, but in the near term, they will suffer some PNL losses um, due to due to those um, credit losses that's going to be that they're going to be experiencing. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, you have a few lenders, um, so you know, Square PayPal uh credibly. Uh you see this deal between Amazon and Goldman to to offer uh financing to Amazon merchants and then a few other examples out there of uh lenders that either came into the space with a strong enough balance sheet or were able to reposition themselves quickly enough um and are now in a position to actually gain share. And what we uh what we're recommending is that uh, if a lender is either in the medium bucket or the, the top bucket of people who can actually grow aggressively, uh, this is actually probably one of the most inv- uh, attractive environments to originate new loans, both from the perspective of having uh environment with reduced competition, so being able to uh, pick and choose which customers you want to work with, and secondly is the ability to uh, use those loans as a tool for acquiring a broader customer relationship and offering them additional services over time. Um, and thirdly, from a branding perspective, we feel it's important for a lender to be seen, uh, to be out there working with with individuals and businesses to weather through the crisis. And we feel that brand value is going to have longer term benefits as well for the lenders.
0: So this next question is kind of a two-parter. Um, we've heard uh, probably the the most about the uh, paycheck protection program Um, but uh, what are some other uh, federal lending programs in play right now that's the first part
2: yeah there's certainly um, kind of a plethora of government programs that have been um, introduced since the start of the crisis and actually it's worth noting that not all of these even though the federal programs have received most of the headlines. There are a number of interesting state and local programs that we feel um, small to medium-sized businesses should be exploring as well. So, for example, on the state side, we see uh, the New York Forward Loan Fund. Um, We see San Francisco has a a hardship emergency loan program. Uh, We see Denver with its own program and a lot of other uh, cities and states are offering their own financing. But even within the federal loan programs, there's actually a variety of uh, loans and facilities that have been introduced. And actually, what we're telling um, our small to mid-sized clients is that they almost have to have uh, develop a new core competence in being able to navigate uh, this landscape uh, as part of navigating through the crisis more broadly. Looking at the federal programs, there are kind of three large ones that have been talked about. Um, The first one was the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, that a lot of people have heard about. This came in two tranches. The first was about $350 billion. Uh, The second one was $320 billion. And in total, about 5 million loans uh, were originated under this program. Uh, Just as comparison, there are about 30 million small businesses in the U.S., so kind of addressed a uh, pretty significant percentage of, of the needs for that segment. Loan size for uh, the Paycheck Protection Program is up to $10 million, but they tend to be on the smaller size, so they tend to average about 100 k They don't require collateral, and um, the interesting thing about this program is that it tries to link taking on the loan with trying to keep as many people on payroll or off the unemployment rolls as possible. So what the government did was uh, or the SBA, is they're offering loan forgiveness if the borrower or the company can show that they spend 85% of the loan um, towards meeting their payroll obligations. And the second large program is what's called the EIDL, or uh, Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. Again, this is being offered by the SBA. Um, in contrast to the PPP, the EIDL is actually being issued directly by the SBA. So Instead of applying through your bank, you would apply directly to the SBA for this loan. Uh, In total, the EIDL has two tranches, which total about $70 billion of loans. The other interesting thing about EIDL is that they're actually, in addition to the loan, there's actually a grant that companies can get, which is worth $1,000 per employee. And these grants were actually one of the first things that many businesses received in terms of relief for the crisis. The loan sizes are anywhere from 0 to 150000 Um Another contrast with the Paycheck Protection Program is that these loans, uh, for any loan that's above 25000 uh it does require collateral, whereas the Paycheck Protection Program are unsecured loans. The third interesting facility is called the Main Street Lending Program. This one is actually not being offered by the SBA, but by the Federal Reserve, and it's being managed by the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, actually. Um, The total amount for the Main Street Lending Program is uh, $600 billion of funding. And this is actually targeted more towards mid-sized businesses. So the loan sizes are a little bit larger, so anywhere from $250,000 minimum up to $35 million in terms of the maximum loan size. Again, like the PPP, these loans are being originated by banks. So a borrower would go to their bank to apply for, for a Main Street loan they also come with pretty onerous restrictions in terms of how the fund can be used so there are restrictions on stock buybacks there are restrictions on executive compensation and a number of other things that companies should keep in mind before applying for one of these the other uh, the other interesting thing here is that the federal reserve is actually partnering with the banks so well, what the fed has told the banks is that for every loan that a bank originates the fed will buy 85 to 95% of that loan so that uh, if the banks are worried about taking on additional exposure or risk, um, the Federal Reserve can, can help them mitigate that uh, through partnering with the banks. So three very interesting programs with um, different target segments, and we feel that businesses should, should try to be as w- well-versed as possible and you know have the maximum amount of information as they decide which of these to take advantage of.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you again for sharing that informed perspective on a maybe under-discussed, but nonetheless very important topic as we continue to navigate the current crisis and look forward to a post-pandemic world. Thank you, Nathan. I appreciate it. My co-host today, once again, was Dr. Boaz Salek, founder and CEO of Fisher Jordan. My name is Nathan Johnson. You can find out more about Fisher Jordan and our work helping clients exchange complexity for clarity at fisherjordan.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R, Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N.com. Thanks again for listening to our first full-length episode here on Views from the Crow's Nest. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you shared it with a friend or colleague writing a review or leaving a rating on whichever podcast app you use also helps this podcast become more discoverable to new listeners and as a reminder you can find and subscribe to views from the crow's nest on apple google stitcher TuneIn, and more still on the way and of course you can always access it directly via podcast.fisherjordan.com Finally, if you have any comments or questions on today's episode, or even if you have a suggested topic for our next view from the crow's nest, feel free to send us an email engage at fisherjordan.com and we will see you from the crow's nest.